BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. The non-fungible token, or NFT craze, which took off in 2020, appears to continue unabated. An NFT of digital artist Beeple's work brought in $69 million at auction last month, and other NFTs are being sold for similarly eyebrow-raising sums. We talk with Jonathan Zittrain about the NFT's future. Then ultra-marathoner Dean Carnassus, who once ran 50 marathons in 50 days in all 50 states, has a new book, A Runner's High, My Life in Motion. It charts his return to the Western state's 100-mile endurance run in his mid-50s. Forum is next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, are essentially digital certificates of authenticity that attach to things like songs, photos, sports clips, and they can command hefty prices, the most expensive so far, $69 million for an NFT of a digital work by artist Beeple. And demand for NFTs is showing no sign of declining, despite the, quote, paltriness of the privileges they convey to their owners, as law professor Jonathan Zittrain writes in his recent Atlantic piece. He joins us now. Jonathan Zittrain, welcome to Forum. Thanks so much for having me. I know I just said what an NFT is, but I don't think you can explain it too many times. So in your words, what exactly is an NFT? Well, I can't help but think of the scene in uh, the now ancient movie Five Easy Pieces in which Jack Nicholson (laughs) is at a diner and he just wants toast and they don't offer toast. And so he asks for a tuna fish sandwich, hold the mayo, hold the lettuce, hold the tuna fish. And... um, then he gets his toast, but of course he doesn't. He gets thrown out of the diner. And uh, the reason I was thinking about that is because <clears throat> what an NFT is, at least as it's been turning out in practice, and maybe even as they mean it in theory, is that it's a certificate of authenticity of only itself. And it may be linked to something else. It may point to a digital work or something, But the only thing that is non-fungible is in the kind of classic case, the very certificate that is the token. And I I realize I'm not, am I helping in explaining this? (laughs) And it's because usually when we think of owning something or purchasing something, usually, again, these are generalizations, we think that we're coming into possession of something 
that might be, uh, for example, rivalrous, which is to say, uh, if it's a bar of chocolate, if I take a bite out of that bar, that's a bite that someone else can't have. There's only so much chocolate in that wrapper. And by owning it, you get to decide who takes the bites. And so now you get one of the privileges of ownership. Or another uh, privilege would be so-called excludability, which is to say I can take the chocolate bar and put it in my fridge and only allow certain people into my house to open the fridge and behold the chocolate bar and be near it. And you could see how something like the Mona Lisa, we have tons of images of it online, really high resolution, but there's something about actually finding it in situ and being a few feet from it and imagining that you know, there was a paintbrush that touched the canvas in front of me kind of thing that has to do, again, with physical relation to the object. So those are the tuna fish and the mayo in the sandwich. The NFT takes that away at the end of the day and says somebody might be able to put a copy of something in digital form online and then create this token and say, I will assign this token to only one other person as represented by their blockchain wallet. And when I assign it to them, they get the pride of knowing that the token has been assigned to them. <laughs> but again, typically what the token points to is something that everybody has a chance to see. So if it's a work of art, the Beeple thing online, people can go visit it every bit as much as the owner of the token can. So what you're getting when you get it has to do with the good feelings it gives you inside to own the token rather than a more direct sensory experience of the art than someone else who doesn't own the token. And of course, the other thing you're getting when you have the token is the ability to assign it to someone else. So you could see a speculator saying, I don't know why people like these things, but they seem to have a lot of value. So I'm going to buy them in the hopes that people want them even more a little later. Yes. Well, I think that's a pretty a pretty good explanation, honestly, because as you t describe the Beeple thing, everybody can see it. I was listening to an episode of The Daily where Kevin Roos was describing that he auctioned off an NFT of his article about NFTs that anyone can still access online, but he auctioned off the NFT of it, the, the string of code, the certificate of authentic authenticity for $560,000. So I think all of this raises the question and that you started to answer it as to why why anyone would want to own an nft uh, what you get out of it you say it could be speculative right people are saying that these things will have value people are finding value in these things so i'm making an investment in getting it but what are some other reasons that people would spend i mean essentially ridiculous sums of money in some cases um like the people thing or the or the new york times article that everyone can access yes and I think the Kevin Roos article example is an excellent example uh, showing reasons why people might want to buy one, even understanding everything we were just talking about. Because in the case of Kevin Roos's uh, NFT, a token that then points to some digital representation of the article that everybody can see by just going to nytimes.com or by looking at the digital representation, he made it clear when he was setting up that auction as part of the experiment first, that the proceeds would go to charity. They weren't going to go to Kevin Roos and they weren't going to rest just with the New York Times as a profit making thing. The New York Times has something called the Neediest Cases Fund. It's a 110 year old effort. 
uh, to support charitable causes in New York. And so this is a colorful way to give to charity the way that at a charity auction, people might vastly overbid on like, you know, works submitted by kids that you'd normally just put on a fridge, but you overpay for it because you're meaning to give to charity. Let's not even get started on whether you get an appropriate tax write-off for having Oof. bought this thing. I probably not because, you know, who knows? But that would be one reason for somebody to do it. And that carries over. That's not an edge case to the extent that we're talking about art and artists as having pride of place at the moment in NFTs. It might be a decent, popular, high-profile vehicle to serve as a patron for an artist, simply to push some support towards them by buying this NFT and to be able to publicly advertise that you have done so, kind of intertwining your reputation with theirs, which could be of benefit to both supporter and artist, depending. So that's nicely represented um, by Kevin Roos's NFT thing. The other thing is that the purchase of that one particular NFT, right? What you are buying is kind of up to the person selling the NFT to specify. And in its purest form, as we've already said, it's a link to something online or maybe in rare cases embedded with the token itself. But you could also say, oh yeah, and I'll throw in a paper newsletter or a physical certificate. Or in the case of Kevin Roos's article, you can offer up a quote for the follow-up article that will be about the purchase of the NFT. And you could see that of being great value to somebody purchasing it to be able to be announced in the New York Times that way. And those are, it remains to be seen whether what I would call like these bonuses or extras are the lion's share of the value that people figure they're buying on a given NFT. But it's kind of extrinsic to the NFT. And we've gotten wonderfully far without even mentioning the word blockchain, it's extrinsic (laughs) to all of that. And so uh, if that's the case, you could just put this thing up on eBay or, you know, on a website and not even worry about the strange rites and rituals of tokenizing something or putting it on a blockchain. We're talking with Jonathan Zittrin, director of the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. He's co-author of the Atlantic article, What Critics Don't Understand About NFTs. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What do you think of NFTs? What are your questions, your concerns? Would you consider buying one? Have you? Are you an artist? Would you consider making one or already have? 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786 is the number. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQ. KQED forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So really quickly, we probably should explain the blockchain and its relationship to all of this. Jonathan Zittrain, if you could. <laughs> I know <laughs> really we did an entire hour on the blockchain, is, so I know um, nothing yeah. is really quick about explaining it, but if you could okay. just for purposes of this discussion. Well, with deepest apologies to the many people who are totally immersed in uh, the blockchain tech and are just inhaling so they can say, well, actually, um, let me do a lossy representation of the blockchain, which is, it's a way of having a public announcement by someone that can't easily be repudiated. Once you make it, you can't unmake it. And the announcement can be about anything. And in that sense, that's why you hear blockchain as ledger. It's a notation book in which people can write something, and it will be tied at least to their wallet, to a numerical ID that is unique as a buyer and a seller or a transactor on the blockchain that in turn 
might be able to be tied to a real world identity, especially if the person bearing the wallet wants to advertise their identity. And that kind of ledger lets you say things like, hey, all right, everybody, pay attention. I'm giving this person five units of currency. And when you say that, the act of saying it can be the act of transferring the tokens that represent currency. Those are fungible tokens. And now that person has them and you don't anymore. And the other key thing about these kinds of ledgers is that they are, quote unquote, distributed, which is to say uh, the function of the ledger recording who has made what announcements about what regarding whom the cranking through and recording those is not entrusted or carried out by any one entity. Rather, there's a very bizarre process called mining by which anybody with a computer, a really good graphics card in its initial form and later with a ton of computers next to a hydroelectric dam can perform this act of mining and record announcements on the blockchain. And the idea is like, we're done trusting central banks. We're done trusting VeriSign. We're done trusting pretty much anybody. And therefore, we have this collective hallucination of a blockchain that only exists because people find it worth their while, because circularly they are paid a tiny bit of tokens in the token of that chain um, in order to mine it. And uh, that's how stuff gets recorded. So that's a huge amount of machinery brought to bear when an artist wants to say, I have tokenized my work and I would like to assign it uniquely to someone. And if that wasn't clear enough, uh, right after the break, I do think an easy way to help people understand NFTs and maybe its relationship to blockchain is by explaining how you create an NFT and how they're bought and sold quickly. And we'll do that right after the break. So stay with us. We're talking about non-fungible tokens or NFTs, what they are and why they matter with Jonathan Zittrin. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about NFTs, what they are and why they matter with Jonathan Zittrin, who's written a piece in The Atlantic called What Critics Don't Understand About NFTs. And you, our listeners, can join us 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And Jonathan Zittrin, really quickly, because we only have you for about 10 more minutes, can you just explain how you make an NFT, how an artist makes an NFT and then buys and sells it, and why this is something that has actually been helpful to some artists. Sure. And I'd say there's already shaping up to be the kind of artisanal, really roll it your own way, the way that you might build your own PC rather than buy one at the store. Um, and then there's what are shaping up to be kind of some mass produce assisted ways. And so the artisanal way would be to figure out what 
work or utterance you're trying to point to and how to represent that digitally. So if it's a song file, you're going to encode it uh, in some, you know, like MP3 or some other format. If it's a document, you might, it's going to be a PDF or maybe it's just the first page. If it's going to be signed, is it a physical signature you'll then scan? You got to figure out how to represent the thing the token will point to or encode. And once you've done that, you need to put it somewhere. And it could technically be anywhere. You put it on a website, you, I don't know, put it on Facebook, but technically uh, or typically those who are really into this distributed blockchain stuff will want to put it in a distributed storage system. So there are distributed file systems like uh, IPFS where you try to enroll it. And this can take a lot of, you know, you're downloading weird stuff to your PC, you're, you're, it's, it's, it's not in this early stage exactly easy to do, but once it is done there, then you encode the token, you figure out which blockchain, there's more than one, you're going to put it on. And there's even an opportunity, especially on uh, one of the blockchains, Ethereum, which was designed early on a few years ago to have the capacity for so-called smart contracts, where you could write into the wrapper of this token the rules by which it will move along from person to person. So for example, you could encode a 10% royalty back to the original artist seller for every successive sale on the blockchain of this thing. Wow. And that can be really careful writing these smart contracts. And then you put it on the token and then you try to get people to notice it because it's otherwise just like a you know bubble going down the stream of the blockchain. So you have to kind of beat the drum, get people to notice it, and then they will transact with you on the chain uh, to offer a particular payment, uh, possibly in the currency of that blockchain, and then you transfer it over to them. Um, and then as you are saying, the, if they continue to sell it, that person who bought it, the artist gets a cut, which is partly If why that's written so into the smart exactly, contract. into the contract. Yeah. Um, and then just in 10 seconds, the mass-produced way is some company called like NFTizeMe.us or something you could go to them and they're like, just send us the file and we'll do the rest and we'll take a cut. And then you have to trust them that they're doing it right. Right. Well, let me go to call a Russell in San Francisco. Hi, Russell. Hi there. And I wanted to ask, there was a study published about two years ago in Nature Climate by seven authors stating that the that NFTs um, and Bit, Bitcoin specifically, though, with but NFTs are part of the conversation, could push global warming emissions above two degrees C within less than three decades as a result of the blockchain technology yes. and our, all the transactions. And I'm wondering what you think of that. Yes. Uh, can you talk quickly, Jonathan Zittern, about the environmental impact of creating an FAT NFT because it requires so much computing power and so many servers to run Ethereum, which is the blockchain that the NFTs run on, the one you just described. <laughs> Yeah, and I was just reviewing some of the numbers that the co-author of my article, Will Marks, uh, had pulled together around the claimed environmental impacts, including the study that Russell just mentioned. And these are going to be approximations. It's really hard to know uh, how to measure this stuff. But the fundamental thing to realize is to establish this distributed blockchain that you don't have to trust anyone in particular to keep it running uh, requires the way they are currently implemented, typically, that you 
solve an arbitrarily complicated problem through guessing. And the guessing is what takes all the computational power. And it's not a problem that anybody needs to have solved. That's what makes it arbitrary. Because by making it random, who gets to record the next transaction as a function of how many guesses they're making per minute, that is a way of assuring that no one party gets to announce all the transactions and possibly occasion double spending of tokens on the chain. It is such an interesting, fascinating theoretical way to solve the question of how to generate a collective hallucination with nobody in charge. But it does mean you have all these people, because they earn money when they win to mine and they collect a transaction fee, they're all competing to randomly be the one to solve the problem first, which means they're using energy to guess as quickly as possible. And that adds up. I mean, this one University of Cambridge consumption index says that Bitcoin miners, and that's one, uh, the, the kind of the most popular blockchain, could consume roughly 130 terawatt hours of energy, roughly 0.6% of global electricity consumption. Now, again, these numbers are huge approximations, big error bars, but that is a meaningful amount of energy being consumed for the sake of making graphics cards in banks of servers run hot for the sake of winning a lottery that pays them a small sliver when they advance the chain. And as you might guess, the technologists behind blockchain, uh, who themselves are not like formally organized, are contemplating ways of keeping it distributed without having this entirely wasteful function at the core of it, just to ensure random winners of this lottery. Hmm. Well, let me read a couple of... If I could ask a follow-up, is there a way that green electrons could be mandated as part of this function um, by governments, state or federal? I mean, you can try to regulate however you like. And if by green electrons, I confess it's the first I've heard the phrase, you mean like just green energy or offsets or something like that, which maybe you don't mean, but things like that, you're still having to exert the energy and then take the effort to offset it when the energy at the end of the day uh, if there's another way to assure distribution or not have to rely on a distributed network, problem solved at the beginning. Well, Russell, thanks for the important question, and I'm glad we were able to talk about that environmental impact. A couple of questions we're getting just on specifics. Jim tweets, why aren't there any NFT escrow services for authentication yet? There's nothing preventing you or me from selling duplicate or plagiarized titles to art. Or Paul writes, does the NFT also assign the copyright of the reference work to the purchaser? If so, the purchaser may be able to take down the publicly available versions and or sue for copyright infringement. Can you answer these yeah. questions? Uh, terrific questions. And uh, on the question of copyright, again, just like the bonuses of I'll send you something in the mail, you can be quoted in my article, you could have as one of the add-ons uh, pertinent to the transfer of the NFT, oh yeah, I'll give you the following elements of copyright ownership as well, at which point now they're buying copyright, which they could have bought on eBay or in a separate contract with you. And then that would be something of value that you're conveying around an intangible work that we've had years to work through and argue about around copyright. The typical NFT auction at the moment uh, or transfer does not convey any particular intellectual property rights for the item in question. So um, you could do it. It just at the moment doesn't appear to be happening very much. And that runs right uh, into the first question about authenticity. 
which is it's true. This stuff gets offered up as a from a wallet pointing to something that anybody could put up there. I could take a Banksy work right now and put it on a blockchain and be like, hello, you know, it's pointing to this Banksy work. And you would think that somebody buying it would do the diligence to say, all right, is the person behind that wallet really Banksy? And this is, again, where the third parties can come in. Somewhat ironically, since the whole underlying platform is one that's designed to operate without requiring anything but technical trust, and you have Christie's or Sotheby's or somebody saying, yeah, yeah, we're putting Christie's reputation on the line to say this really is Banksy or whoever, the actual artist behind it, and here's how you can authenticate them. But uh, you're right. You, there, there are. There's even a website that documents um, uh, NFTs that actually aren't even tied to their original artists that are being put up for sale and being bought, because there's a lot of cryptocurrency sloshing around on these chains that a few people, crypto whales, may have bought years ago when it was like worth nothing. And now it's worth, you know, hundreds of millions, supposedly of dollars. If it were to all be liquidated, that would be its own market moving event. And there may be people who out of romanticism or out of tax treatment or something don't want to move their money off the blockchain do want to diversify it so they push a little into these nfts or maybe money laundering but <laughs> that's one of, <laughs> one of my producers suggested but really quickly you've just outlined so many potential directions this could go right now the nft thing is considered a bubble where do you see this going as your final thought as you leave us jonathan zittrin well i like to see it go in the direction of artists often find themselves kind of getting the short end of the stick in business transactions, despite often people wanting to support them. If there is some way to make sure, and there's dangers with this much money or proto money sloshing around, that there's actually a way to highlight and support the work of artists, then let's run with that. Hmm. But it's going to be tricky. There's just too many angles on this um, and so often with these technologies, including the internet itself, we have this sort of moment that feels like organic, democratic, bottom-up kind of promise. And then at some point, it's like, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And uh, I think once again, we're at that, that stage of things. Well, Jonathan Zittrin, thanks so much for taking the time to explain <laughs> or just give us some insight into what's happening with NFTs these days. Really appreciate it. Totally my pleasure. Thank you. Jonathan Zittrin, director of the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard, also co-author of the Atlantic article, What Critics Don't Understand About NFTs. We'll have more next, this time with Dean Carnassus, author of the book, A Runner's High. So stay with us as we talk with the ultramarathon man. I'm Mita Kim. This is Paul. In this context, there's no disrespect. So when I bust my rhyme, you break your neck. We got five minutes for us to disconnect from all intellect and let the rhythm affect. Follow your intuition. Free your inner soul and break away from tradition. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.